Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, and welcome to an encore episode of your favorite podcast that just so happens to be about movies and how it's nearly impossible to make one, and how it's a miracle that any of them turn out any good at all. But before we get to our wonderful, wonderful episode today, we'd like to make a quick announcement. Next season, we're going to be launching mini-sodes on a bi-weekly basis, and the content of those mini-sodes is going to come from you, our lovely audience. That's right, this is your opportunity to share horror stories, funny stories, hopefully not too traumatizing, from your experiences on set. Could be a TV show, could be a feature film, could be a commercial. If you work in film and TV and you enjoy this podcast, please consider sharing your story with us. You can email it to us at whatwentwrongpod at gmail.com. Ideally, send in a voice memo. We would love to play it and talk about it. But if you would like a little anonymity, feel free to just send it to us in text form. We will read it and we can omit your name and the production, whatever level you're comfortable with. We've already gotten some great ones from some of our friends who work in the biz and we're very excited to get these going. All right. Enough of that call to action. Lizzie, tell us about what we're talking about today. Well, I want to give you all a little teaser because what we're doing between seasons is highlighting our favorite episodes from the last few seasons of What Went Wrong. And today, we've got a doozy for you and one that is currently relevant because you may have noticed in the news, Kevin Costner's going through a pretty public and unpleasant-looking divorce. It doesn't look great. Feel bad for everybody involved. If you want to hear a little bit more about that, by the way, we have a little Patreon episode about what's going on currently in Mr. Costner's life, including his abrupt exit from Yellowstone. It's all tied together. But here's the thing. This is not Kevin Costner's first public divorce that has led to some questionable filmmaking choices. No, no, no. In order to talk about that, we got to kick it back to 1995's Waterworld. Let me give you a little taste about what you're about to hear in this special episode we've pulled out from the vault for you. Costner nearly got decapitated by a helicopter. His stunt double got stranded on a jet ski. And the whole movie, he sports gills that looked so much like vulvas, they had to be reduced in post. So if that doesn't hook you, I don't know what will. And without further ado, please enjoy our encore episode of Waterworld. Welcome to this week's episode of What Went Wrong. I am one of your hosts, Lizzie Bassett, uh, here virtually with your other host, Chris Winterbauer. Chris, how's it going? It's going well, Lizzie. Glad to be recording the podcast on another 
lovely Friday night in my <laughs> 97 degree apartment. It's so hot. It's horrible. It's bad. Um, so uh, last week, I'm well aware of the fact that I promised you all this week's episode would be about The Wizard of Oz. Um, I have to throw myself on the altar of shame here and just tell you that I did not get my shit together in time for it to be an episode on The Wizard of Oz. It will be coming next week. And based on what I have learned so far, I'm pretty excited for it. So instead of The Wizard of Oz this week, we are covering another W movie. Uh, Chris, what is it? It's actually a double W movie. It is! Water World. (laughs) A film that has lived in infamy since its release in 1995. The movie that spawned a Universal Studios ride and endless uh, puns involving water and fiascos. So, Lizzie, I believe you saw the movie for the first time last night. Please share your thoughts. Yes. Um... I have seen the Universal Studios show previously, which is 10 out of 10, fantastic. Lots of explosions and jet skis. Highly recommend. The movie, however, um, like I knew it was going to be bad. I The whole thing about Waterworld is like, oh, it's terrible. I didn't understand what I was getting myself into. And my biggest question is, why is Kevin Costner's character just such a bag of dicks to all the women in the movie for the whole movie. He's like a domestic abuser. And then at the very end, he's like, I guess I like kids and women. And they're like, thank you, Kevin. And that's it. And then he saves the day after after blowing up a poor old man in an oil slick. And I think that's the plot. <laughs> well, uh, we certainly come at this from different perspectives. <laughs> I, I, I loved this movie as a child. Oh, my God. Uh, I it has not aged as well as I'd hoped it would uh, in terms of its misogyny and portrayal the portrayal of women in particular. It's insane. But I'm excited. <laughs> it's I'm excited insane. to talk about it. Uh, we are going to get into the behind the scenes aspects, uh, but a brief overview before we get started. Waterworld, of course, is a movie that took Steven Spielberg's advice to never shoot on the water, drowned it in a puddle, <laughs> and decided to shoot exclusively on the water. This is a movie that briefly owned the ignoble title of being the most expensive movie ever made, and one that, be it causation or correlation, marked a downturn in the career of one of Hollywood's biggest stars, Kevin Costner. Uh, It was so infamous that it was actually referenced in the 1996 movie The Cable Guy when Jim Carrey is attempting to drown Matthew Broderick in the flood late in the film. I'm going to play you a brief clip from that movie to show how it had permeated the zeitgeist. Please do. Drowning is not a bad. I've seen it. Kevin Costner, Waterworld. So, (laughs) obviously, people are having fun uh, at the movie's expense in Hollywood (laughs) and elsewhere. Uh, For those of you that don't know, Waterworld is, of course, a 1995 post-apocalyptic action film directed by Kevin Reynolds, starring Kevin Costner. Uh, It also starred Gene Triplehorn, Dennis Hopper, and a nine-year-old Tina Majorino. The movie is set 500 years in the future and imagines a world where sea levels have risen 25,000 feet and Earth is entirely underwater. Yeah, ahead of its time for the for the sort of global warming apocalypse angle. Yes, very much so. Uh, the remaining humans live on ramshackle flotillas called atolls, and there are rumors of a mythical dry land somewhere in this endless ocean. Kevin Costner plays the Mariner, that's his only mm. name, 
a drifter with gills who can breathe underwater as he attempts to protect Enola, a young girl with a back tattoo that might have the key to save humanity. So, and her protector, Helen. Wait, let me get okay. to it. They're pursued and threatened by the Smokers, a band of gas guzzling pirates led by Dennis Hopper's The Deacon. Explosions ensue. Okay, so as we were, David and I watched this last night. As we were watching it, David was at the top. He was like, wait, wait, wait. Do you know the twist? And I was like, no. Like, how is there going to be a twist in this movie? I, I assumed it would be something like, oh, the dry land is underwater. It's like a city below the seas. And that's the twist. Atlantis. Something no, like that. No. Yeah. It's that he has gills and is some kind of disgusting web-footed fish creature. And I lost my mind. Like, I can't. Not a twist. <laughs> not a Happens twist. Happens in the first 10 minutes of the movie. <laughs> yeah, David, you did not prepare me for that appropriately. She, like, pulls back his ear and you see his gross little, mm. like, skin flap kind of breathing. And David was like, that's it. That's the twist. <laughs> that's the twist. <laughs> like, what? He's he's been dead the whole oh time. Oh my god. Uh, okay, I am so excited because that is going to be a big part of our conversation. So, the final price tag for Waterworld was one hundred and seventy-five million dollars uh, at the time that it came out in nineteen ninety-five. That made it the highest budgeted film ever. It would soon, of course, be surpassed by James Cameron's Titanic. Titanic. It was released to middling reviews and a similarly anemic box office response, and it serves as one of the greatest examples we have of a toxic buzz poisoning a film before it could even reach its audience. The question remains, however, is Waterworld as big a failure as history would have us believe? Let's dive in. So Waterworld's journey began in 1986 when aspiring writer-director Peter Rader was brought in for a meeting at New Horizon. Now New Horizon is the production company of Roger Corman. You know, Roger Corman is the B-movie schlockmaster. Who James Cameron worked for. Exactly. Uh, So Rader met with a young executive, Brad Cravoy, who would later go on to produce Dumb and Dumber. And Brad Cravoy told Rader, I've got an infusion of South African money, sounded very sketchy, (laughs) and I need to do a Mad Max ripoff. If Raider can write the script, Cravoy says, I'll let you direct it. Well, that's and he's never directed anything. Exactly before. what this is. And that's exactly yeah, it's fully a Mad Max ripoff. So Raider didn't love the idea of just doing another Mad Max regurgitation until he was sailing. Apparently he was into sailing at the time. And he said, But what if the entire world was covered in water? Whoa. And he pitched this idea to Cravoy, who laughed him out of the room, saying that a movie like that would cost at least $5 million to make. Mm. And Corman's projects were often budgeted around three or $500,000. He was making tiny budget right. stuff. So Cravoy laughed him out of the room, and Raider decided to write the film on his own. He wrote the script and shelved it for a couple of years. Uh, Then in 1989, Raider sold the script to producer Lawrence Gordon of Largo Entertainment. He then wrote six or seven drafts over the following two years while they attempted to attach a director. They'd attach the director, they'd approach someone, Raider would write a new draft, and it would fall through. It kept happening, and he was pretty disillusioned, and it seemed like the project was going nowhere. Until, in 1991, a miracle happens. Kevin Costner randomly gets wind of the Waterworld script through Lawrence Gordon's brother, Chuck Gordon. So Chuck Gordon had produced Field of Dreams and worked with Kevin Costner repeatedly, and he slipped Costner the script. And it's hard to overstate Costner's star power Oh, yeah, he was huge. It's worth doing a brief detour into his career. Kevin Costner came from humble beginnings. 
He was born in Compton, California. His mother was a welfare worker and his dad was an electrician. He attended Cal State Fullerton and he studied business administration, Hmm. is my understanding. And he really only discovered his passion for acting and dance in the final year of undergrad. He then got married to Cindy Silva. He took a job at an advertising agency and started taking acting classes five nights a week and just auditioning and hustling. He thought he'd gotten his big break when he was cast in The Big Chill, directed by Lawrence Kasdan. The only issue is he was set to portray Alex, the friend whose suicide brings the group together. In the initial script, he had scenes that were filmed as flashbacks that ended up being played and they got cut from the film. So you see Kevin Costner's boots in the movie, but you never see Kevin Costner. However, Lawrence Kasdan really liked working with him and promised Costner that he would get him a role in one of his next movies. And that was 1985's Silverado, which was a Western and it was a big hit. And Kevin Costner kind of was established as a you know, good supporting player in Hollywood. Uh, So he kind of worked steadily throughout the 1980s. And then it was his turn as Elliot Ness in 1987's The Untouchables that blew him up internationally as a leading man. Over the next five years, he had one of the craziest runs of hits of any actor I've ever seen. He starred in Bull Durham, Mm -hmm. Field of Dreams, Dances with Wolves, Robin Hood, JFK, and The Bodyguard. Wow. In this span, he won two Academy Awards. Ooh, for what? For Dances with Wolves, Best Director, and Best Picture, because he starred in, produced, and directed Dances with and Wolves. And also, it, anybody who's listened to our Titanic episode may remember that they actually used Dances with Wolves as sort of a litmus test of the only three-hour-long movie that could be financially successful. Exactly. He was also nominated for Best Actor in Dances with Wolves. He lost to Jeremy Irons. He not only was a critical success... The combined box office receipts of just The Bodyguard, Robin Hood, and Dances with Wolves was $1.2 billion. So each of those movies made $400 million at the box office. So he comes out of the late 80s into the early 90s as this unprecedented triple threat. He's an actor, a director, and a producer. And he's Oscar winning in two out of three of those categories. At the same time as Kevin Costner's circling this script, Kevin Reynolds, a director, has reached out to the Gordon Company to see if they're looking for a director on Waterworld, independent of Kevin Costner. And it seems like this is the universe bringing all the right elements together because Kevin Reynolds gave Kevin Costner his first starring role in Kevin Reynolds' debut film, Fandango, from 1985. So Costner and Reynolds became friends after Fandango, and Costner hired Reynolds to direct segments of Dances with Wolves. So in Dances with Wolves, when Costner couldn't direct himself Mm -hmm. or he needed somebody to direct a second unit, Kevin Reynolds was on set doing that work. So it seems like, oh my God, it's great. We've got the director and the actor. The only problem is they're not talking to each other anymore because they had just shot Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where Kevin Reynolds got so pissed off during the editing process that he quit the movie and refused to attend the premiere. So it seems like the Lawrences have this perfect combo of star and director. They just have to get them to talk to each Mm. other. Chuck Gordon convinces the Kevins to meet in Lake Tahoe where Costner's filming the bodyguard and bury the hatchet. They did whatever men do to resolve their differences. I don't know if it was a hatchet fight. Sure. And agreed to stay, shared a sleeping bag and agreed to start fresh with Waterworld. So Raiders long adrift spec script had a director and a bona fide movie star. So Costner and company take the script to 
Universal. So Universal is uncomfortable greenlighting a movie at this price, but they don't want to lose the project to another studio, so they kind of split the baby. Basically, externally, Universal greenlights the project at $65 million, hoping to find the ways to keep the price tag around that budget during prep. But internally, they've basically greenlit it for $100 million. And then internally, internally, meaning Costner and the Lawrences, they know the thing's going to actually probably cost $135 million. So already there's disconnects between public perception, Universal, and the producers. Not a good place to start. So... Really quickly, to wrap things up on the writing side, uh, unfortunately for the writer, Peter Rader, all of this good news meant that he was no longer going to be involved with the project. The (laughs) Kevins and the producers decided that they wanted to bring in new writers, and it became a revolving door of kind of Hollywood script doctors that would tackle rewrites. Oh, always a good sign. Always a good sign. So David Tuohy, who he was famous at the time for writing The Fugitive, uh, was brought in to do the initial rewrites. They brought in a number of other writers. And as we'll get to later, ultimately, a young Joss Whedon was the onset script doctor for this movie. What? Yeah, polishing scenes as they went. So it was during this scripting phase that the old rifts between the Kevins began to resurface each of them wanting to take the story in different directions. Costner wanted to focus on the character of the Mariner, this brutal loner who brooded and brooded and hated everyone. And Reynolds wanted to hone the narrative. He wanted this to be like a swashbuckling Errol Morris adventure film. Team (laughs) Reynolds. Ultimately, however, Costner had the power. Costner retained creative control over the story, which led to, in Costner's words, Reynolds being passive-aggressive, sitting back and ignoring orders from the studio as they came in, saying, well, it's on Costner. So already things aren't going great. In 1993, Waterworld goes into prep. Uh, Apparently, Kevin Costner calls Steven Spielberg ahead of production for any advice, given the troubles that Spielberg had had while shooting Jaws almost 20 years prior. Yeah. Spielberg responded... Quote, do not shoot on the water. You're going to need a couple of shots on the water, so use a second unit for that. Do all of your coverage in a tank or on a stage. End quote. I think most of us would agree that when it comes to filmmaking, when Steven Spielberg tells you to do something, you should probably do it. However, Kevin Reynolds had a specific gritty vision for the film that he believed could only be achieved by shooting on open water, and Kevin Costner supported this decision and its budget ramifications. That $65 million budget that Universal was hoping to cling to went out the window, and they revised their internal estimates to $100 million, which still was probably unrealistic. It's also worth noting that in 1993, Universal released Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park, which with a box office haul of a billion dollars became the most successful, highest-grossing film of all time. Once again, when Steven Spielberg tells you to do something... You do it. And it's so good. And it holds up unbelievably well. We won't talk about it, but truly, it does. Truly a remarkable movie. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. 
Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. So, production designer Dennis Gassner scouted locations in Australia, New Zealand, Malta, and the Bahamas before deciding on, and I apologize for the butchering of this pronunciation, Kauaihe Harbor, Hawaii, on the Big Island. They picked Hawaii because flights were short and frequent from L.A. The island had reliable fax phone lines, and everything was done by fax in the early 90s. Gassner failed to learn the translation of Kauai-hei, which means warring waters. Uh-oh. And is one of the windiest places in the Pacific. <laughs> oh, no. So... <laughs> The production was a shot in the arm to a reeling local economy in Hawaii. A sugar mill had closed in recent years. They hired over 300 extras and an equal number of crew members. So that's close to 1,000 people that they hired to work on this production, similar to Apocalypse Now. Local contractors, knowing that they were the only games in town, gouged the production on everything that they could, from steel supplies to porta potties, charging them double, triple, quadruple what it would cost on mainland United States. Computers and generators would regularly, quote, go missing from the production and often needed to be replaced. The crew swelled to over 500 strong as they struggled to finish the complex and expensive construction that the project required. Now, Lizzie, when you watched this movie, did you not think to yourself, holy shit, did they build all of this stuff? Yes, I did. In fact, I said multiple times to David, that looks like a somewhat functioning catamaran. Did they really build that thing? They did. They actually built two of them. good. So... Costner's trimaran, which is a catamaran with a third pontoon, was fully functional and 60 feet long. It could reach a speed of 30 knots. Two of them were made for $500,000 a piece. Oh my god. One that was used for the speeding part and another one that was used to show the sails going up and down. Sure. So the atoll that Tina Majorino and Gene Triplehorn are on at the beginning of the film was built from over a thousand tons of steel, and it was built in eight separable sections. The original budget for it being $1.5 million, the final price tag for it came in at just over $5 million. Wow. So that atoll that they built, they actually constructed that entire thing, and then they pushed it out a quarter of a mile into the ocean Why, to go record though? at it. That's insane because the, the set piece that Chris is talking about right now, the vast majority of the action with this thing actually happens inside of it. So why yes. would you not just build a set and have... Because they, when they built it close to shore, if they sh- shot up towards one of the ledges, you could see the Hawaiian mountains on the outside. Shoot the so other way! So they had to way. get far enough away from shore. <laughs> well, then they'd have to rotate the set. So... Cost overruns are plaguing pre-production, and the studio actually considered cutting bait with the project. This would be early 1994. However, the actors' pay-or-play deals had kicked in, so this basically meant regardless of whether or not we go forward, you have to pay us a large percentage 
of our fee. And so the producers were already on the hook for well over $20 million at this point in time, and a single camera has not rolled yet. So <sighs> in May of 1994, the cast shows up. As we mentioned, nine-year-old, adorable Tina yeah. Majorino. She was cast as Enola. She beat out Anna Paquin for the part. Anna Paquin had just won an Oscar for her work in the piano. Jean Triplehorn was cast as Helen, Enola's protector. And Dennis Hopper, I think my favorite performance in the whole movie, yeah, was pegged for sure. as the deacon. Like the insane cartoonish villain. On June 27th, 1994, production began on Waterworld. And they have a scheduled shoot of 96 days including several oh, weeks no. of additional effects and tank work filming in Los There's Angeles. There's no way. Exactly. And it should be noted that the film's first assistant director, Alan Curtis, who, if you remember from earlier episodes, the first assistant director is responsible for setting and maintaining the schedule, told Universal that a 96-day shoot was impossible. Yeah. He requested 135 shooting days, and they functionally told him to go fuck himself. <laughs> so, of course, Alan Curtis was on the money, as first ADs often are, and that 96-day schedule goes out the window pretty much immediately. As I mentioned, they've established the set a quarter mile offshore to allow nearly 360-degree filming. That means that each day... 425 members of the cast and crew need to be shuttled across the water that distance, oh my God. often resulting in them barely getting a shot off before lunch. Once they did start shooting, shots were often ruined by passing boats, mountains in the distance, and pods of humpback whales that would be breaching near their production, interrupting continuity. And that's when they were able to shoot. High-speed winds... Like, hurricane-speed winds whip the set daily. Great. Sometimes preventing them from being able to line up a single shot because the set would move too much relative to one another. So hurricane warnings shut down the production three times that I read about, and one that hit sank the 1,000-ton atoll set, <gasps> requiring them to shut down production and salvage it from the bottom of the bay. Oh, my God. They had to, like, pull the thing up from underwater went down like the Titanic. Even when the seas were calm, the unpredictable drift of the camera and picture boats meant that each scene had to be shot multiple times to make sure that the filming angles would match in the editing room. They might line up a close-up on Kevin Costner, and by the time they roll, he's 13 feet in a different direction than <laughs> yeah. he was supposed to be. There's no... You can't lock anything down. No. They could try tying the boats Wait. together, but then you'd see the ropes in I'm front. sorry. This is actually insane. So you're saying that they are not... Even though they've built this gigantic floating set, they are not even shooting on that floating set. They are shooting from no, boats. Both. They are. Sometimes they shoot from the set and sometimes they're shooting from outside the set on, on boats. And when it's just the trimaran, sometimes the camera's on the trimaran and sometimes it's on a separate right. boat that's separate from the trimaran. And sometimes it's on a helicopter that's circling that's trying to keep the shot in frame. Oh, God. So they've got every possible permutation of it. Passing clouds disrupted continuity. They would have to wait for storms to roll by, shutting down production for multiple days. The attack on the atoll early in the film was scheduled to take a week and it took a month to film. To make matters even worse... Injuries and seasickness ran rampant through the cast and crew. The medics on set were treating an average of 40 to 50 people per day for injuries and seasickness. Yeah, I, for the, the, the only experience I have being on a boat for a long period of time is that um, prior to COVID, IMDb used to have the IMD boat at Comic-Con every year, which is a big yacht. That's like a minimal amount of movement. However, 
being on that thing for 12 hours a day. And I'd like to point out looking at screens when you're on a boat and you can see the sort of water level in the background change. I legitimately almost threw up like at least three times a day. Director Kevin Reynolds had a history of seasickness. Oh, good. And good. <laughs> he was just struggling to keep his lunch down as he was trying to direct this movie. Uh, and this isn't even the worst of it. Kevin Costner's stunt double, Laird Hamilton, who we should mention is a very famous American big wave surfer, commuted to and from the Big Island from his home in Maui, 40 miles across open ocean on a jet ski every morning and every night. <laughs> and one, which is pretty boss. Uh, this guy's One great. day, the production freaked out because Laird didn't show up to work. Sure, that's bad. That's <laughs> a long jet ski commute. <laughs> that's a long jet ski commute over open ocean. So they call his wife on Maui and she goes, oh no, Laird left for work early this morning. Great. Turns out, Halfway between Maui and Hawaii, Laird's jet ski ran out of gas. Oh my God. And they had to send out a Coast Guard rescue helicopter that took the crew most of the day to find him. Mm. In a far less comedic incident, stunt coordinator Norman Howell one day rose too quickly during a deep sea dive when they were getting some underwater footage and suffered the bends, mm. a near fatal embolism. He had to be flown to a hospital in Honolulu on Kevin Costner's private jet, apparently. Uh, where he recovered in a decompression chamber for days, canceling any stunt work for that period of time. And it wasn't just the stunt guys that were getting hurt throughout this process. Tina Majorino and Gene Triplehorn were aboard the trimaran when the weather picked up, winds snapped the sail, and the boat began to sink. Oh my god. They were knocked off the boat, and it ran them over. <gasps> they had to then wait as the boat sank around them for 30 minutes until a rescue crew could get close enough to pull them out of the wreckage. Tina Marangerino further earned the nickname Jellyfish Candy from Kevin Costner <laughs> after being transported to shore on three separate occasions to be treated for jellyfish stings. This Aww. is a nine-year-old girl. Jean Triplehorn is quoted saying, I was just feeling a little like Patty Hearst. I was completely brainwashed by my captors and I was just out there trying to get through it. Not an easy production Jesus. for the supporting cast and crew. And Kevin Costner himself was not immune. One scene from the film required him to be strapped high on the trimaran's mast while a helicopter filmed him from roughly the same height. Is this where he's trying to cut the line because yes. Jack Black's helicopter is wrapping the wire around? That's exactly the scene. So let's listen to this clip from a 1995 news segment uh, discussing this stunt in the film. This stunning shot of Costner as the Mariner sailing the seas in a world without land turned out to be the most dangerous scene in Waterworld for him to shoot. When the sun set, 40 knot winds whipped up the sea. Costner was literally stuck to the top of the mast, 50 feet above the water for over an hour. The helicopter, you know, was about 15 feet from me. And of course, the mast is going like that. And when I say fit, it was the blades going around. So, um, you know, there was there was times when I thought, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> you know, and then they go, can we do it again? I go, oh, you got to be out of your mind. But the point was, I couldn't get down, so might as well do it again. But the winds are blowing a helicopter's, the blades of the helicopter, 15 feet from you. What is going through your mind? Are you thinking, the kids, why am I here? Is this worth it? What, yeah. was, what were you thinking? You have, you have a lot of those thoughts. And then you also said, don't forget, look romantic and strong. <laughs> <laughs> and you got all this thing. You say, by the way, you're terrified. Don't forget it. Get that chin out, Kev. You know, and you go, yeah. 
yeah, you know, so, so you know, that's a lot of acting, just faking it, right? Oh. So, uh, he's up there. Apparently, the only thing going through his mind is the notorious Twilight Zone movie helicopter mm-hmm. stunt that killed Vic Morrow and two children. So Costner was attempting to scream at the helicopter, back the fuck up, but the rotor was so loud that they couldn't hear him. Oh, God. Then they got the shot, and that's when the winds came in. And the winds were so strong that everybody had to go below deck and leave Costner <gasps> up there for an hour until the winds died down enough that they could safely go up and get him. So he was strapped to the top of this oh boat 50 God. feet in the air while like 40 mile an hour winds pelted him from every direction. Oh no, poor Kevin Costner. As, as everyone was down below. It sounds absolutely Horrible. miserable. So throughout production... Kevin Costner continues to revise the script because he's unhappy with the story and specifically he's unhappy with his character. And so, Lizzie, I think initially this story was written with his character being more of a classic Western gunslinger type. Man rolls into town. A task needs to be done. He's a mercenary at first and he discovers his morality. I think perhaps what Costner wanted was something more complex But as a result, as you mentioned, he kind of just comes off as a gruff asshole for most of the movie. And then he just has this sudden about face later in the story. And there was definitely a tension, and this is what Costner's fighting, between the action set pieces of the Mm -hmm. movie or do we need more character development? So Costner brings on the young, fresh-faced Joss Whedon (laughs) to come to set in Hawaii and write scenes for him. So Joss Whedon had just script-doctored Speed, also starring Dennis, Dennis Hopper. Hopper. I was going to ask if Speed is before this or after, because this... Dennis, it, is, it is right before. Okay, because Dennis Hopper's performance in Waterworld is legitimately just the it's off-brand the version of his performance <laughs> exactly. in Speed. <laughs> I think he's aware of that. According to Joss Whedon, he's become Kevin Costner's personal scribe. His only real job is to transcribe Kevin Costner's ideas into new pages, putting as little of his own ideas and alterations in as possible. He reportedly called it seven weeks in hell. Great. (laughs) Tensions are running understandably high on set. And from what I can research, the finger pointing escalated quickly. By August, the art department was taking the brunt of the blame for most of these delays and overages. Peter Chesney, a designer responsible for much of the Atoll's build, and Kate Steinberg, who was the head of special effects on set, were both forced off the film in August. I think the hope being from the producers and Costner that if they could shake up those departments, perhaps they could jiggle things loose and start moving faster. That didn't happen. By Labor Day, so they should be almost two-thirds of the way through this shoot, they're not even halfway done, and the first assistant director, Alan Curtis, who had told them from the beginning that they needed 135 days to shoot, quits the film. Yeah. This is a huge red flag for the studio. The first assistant director is the bad guy, is the commander. He is the person in charge making sure things are happening day to day. He walks off. At this moment, the budget has swollen to $135 million. The production is was supposed to end before hurricane season in October, and it's clear they're not going to make that window. It was under these conditions that an envoy of executives visited the Ooh, set. never a good sign. Yeah. Universal President Casey Silver, Costner's agent, and MCA President Sid Scheinberg flew to Hawaii to assess things themselves. They had one directive, get costs under control. Their solution, cut scenes, specifically big action scenes. Kevin Costner said, 
no, I'm not going to do that. And they said, you have to, or we're going to take the money away. So I got to give him a lot of credit. Back against the wall, Kevin Costner put his money where his mouth was. He said, keep us funded through the rest of the shoot, and I will forfeit my back end to keep us going. He was going to get 15% of gross receipts on this project. In the end, that would have been between 13 and $16 million that he gave up to keep the movie going. He's been strapped to a mast 50 feet above the water, almost killed by a helicopter. He's been on set for over 100 days. The guy believes in this movie, and he's going to finish it. Yeah, I don't get the impression that he's an an asshole in reality. No, he is an utter professional from what I can gather. Uh, Maybe a bit of a tyrant on set because he takes all of this very seriously, but... As we're about to discover, 1994 is an incredibly difficult year for Kevin Costner, and this movie is not entirely why. Okay. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. They head into October. At this point in time, rumors begin circulating that Kevin Costner's marriage to his wife of 16 years, Cindy Silva, is in jeopardy, specifically due to an affair that he was having with a Hawaiian hula dancer slash hotel employee at the resort that Costner was staying at. Tabloids picked up the story, and along with photos of the woman in question, they forced Costner to go public with the truth. He and his wife were in the process of divorcing. So while he's in the middle of the toughest shoot he's ever done, Mm. he comes forward and says, yes, we are getting a divorce. But the reality is his wife had served him with divorce papers on his third day on set in Hawaii. Oh, wow. Back in the late spring. He's now gone through this whole project in the middle of a divorce. And now he's getting slammed with tabloids spreading what I truly believe from my research are lies about an affair with this woman at the hotel. It seems like she was just a married mother who was harassed by a hungry press, eager to throw a dart at Costner's kind of good boy reputation. So Costner eventually had to ban the presence of tabloid magazines on set because the cast and crew had them around constantly. He reportedly said, I don't ask for a lot on the set. Be quiet and don't read my tabloid headlines to me. Apparently, Dennis Hopper, with his weird sense of humor, tried to show Costner one of the articles at one point, and Costner just stood up and walked away from him and refused to talk to him. You know Dennis Hopper is just the ultimate button pusher. Like, I'm sure. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, in the end, Costner's divorce doesn't leave the papers right away because not only is it salacious in who it follows, but it's actually financially significant. It was at the time the third most expensive divorce ever. Oh, Jesus. With an $80 million settlement. So Costner's losing $80 million 
in the process of making this movie that might lose a lot of money. Mm, he did something bad then. I don't know if you get $80 million dollars without <laughs> Yeah. You know, he might have done something bad. I don't think that the thing that the tabloids yeah, were reporting sure. on is true. Now, unfortunately, Kevin Costner's divorce would prove to only be the beginning of his financial woes. See, in 1994, the Kevin Costner hot streak was finally cooling down. While he was in prep and production on Waterworld, four projects that he was involved in flopped. That would be China Moon, which he produced, Wyatt Earp, which he starred in and produced, The War, which he starred in alongside Elijah Wood, and most notably, Rapa Nui, which Kevin Reynolds directed, Nobody Saw, made $300,000 against a $20 million budget. Rapa Hui? Exactly. It followed the ethnic struggles of the Rapa Nui tribe on oh, Easter no. Island. Don't use me saying Rapa Nui then. You're going to hell. So suddenly, four months into production, the Kevins need Waterworld to be a hit. Costner is vulnerable financially and critically for the first time in five years. Kevin Reynolds, as a director, is now going from flop to potentially flop. And they need this movie to work. The tensions are high. Fortunately, it seems like Kevin Costner's divorce has actually brought the Kevins closer together for the last bit of production. So Kevin Reynolds went through a divorce in 85 and Costner could confide in him. And so it seems like that helped them a little bit. So the original plan was to wrap filming by December of 1994. However, the delays had them stuck in Hawaii through the end of December. Mm -hmm. In January, they relocate to Los Angeles for the final stretch of shooting on the movie. The underwater city sequences where Costner takes Gene Triplehorn in like a weird like CO2 death trap mm -hmm. bubble yes. down to the bottom of the ocean were shot in tanks at Huntington Beach. Scenes of the Deacon's tanker were filmed on a field in the City of Commerce that was a 114-foot replica of the Exxon Valdez that was mm. made by the production design team. The bungee jump stunt oh my God. that the Mariner does at the, the end of the The most insane thing I've ever seen. I screamed. <laughs> yeah, so this involves, there's a girl in the water, three jet skis trying to get to her, and they're going to do so by running into yeah. each other. And Kevin Costner bungee jumps from a hot air balloon, effectively, to pull her out of the water. That was shot uh, above a blacktop parking lot, so they were shooting it above asphalt, Uh in the city of commerce a stuntman was supposed to do the shot but costner knowing that it would take more takes with a stuntman to ensure that his face was hidden said that he would do it himself because he quote wanted the movie to be over sooner oh my god so he, he risked pancaking his yeah. head on the asphalt just so he could end the movie faster or his life it seems like he <laughs> exactly <laughs> it seems like he would have been fine just <laughs> dying know. in a bungee jump accident at this point in time in an ironic twist of fate, the last day of shooting is Valentine's no. Day, 1995. So Costner has no wife. Oh, no. He needs a hit. The filming wraps on Valentine's Day. It's another bungee jump take in front of a blue screen. Oh, he, th he throws his back out on the last one. Director Kevin Reynolds asks if he can do another take. And Kevin Costner says, we're done. And just walks off the set. Yeah. A planned 96-day shoot had run 157 days. Kevin Costner had worked every single one of oh, them six-day weeks for eight months. The guy is a machine. Yeah. He never stopped. Divorce, four failed movies, injury, cast and crew leaving the, the movie. He stuck through all of it. 
And unfortunately, post-production was not going to go any easier. The film demanded some elaborate planned visual effects, including computer-generated ocean scenes, mm-hmm. a giant sea creature that randomly appears for like six frames. Didn't Lizzie, need if you it. <laughs> Kevin Costner being composited into an underwater city, and there were also some unplanned visual effect requirements. Now, Lizzie, you mentioned Kevin Costner's gills. Yes. Is there any body part that you could think of that people might think the gills look like. I mean, it looks like a vagina. So upon seeing Kevin Costner's gills, specifically during an underwater scene where they're open, (laughs) one Universal executive exclaimed, the damn things look like a vagina. Yes. (laughs) Yes, they did. Columnist Liz Smith got a hold of this story, and producer Chuck Gordon had to call her and deny that Costner had anything resembling female sex organs on his neck, desperately trying to prevent her from running a story that said such. He later said, quote, talking to Liz Smith about vaginas, that was probably the hardest conversation I had on Waterworld. (laughs) 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 Which... Considering everything they went to, uh, says something about his perhaps puritanical upbringing. So the effects team solved the genital problem by digitally tra- digitally transferring Costner's gills from an above water scene where they looked less vaginal yeah. to the underwater shots, which added a lot of expense. This was 1995. VFX were not cheap or easy to do. Uh, In the throes of post-production, the Kevins were once again not getting along. Kevin Reynolds' first cut of the film was two hours and 40 minutes. This wasn't some overstuffed, indulgent director's cut. He had simply included all of the portions of the movie that were written into the script. It was simply too long. Yeah. Now his contract dictated that he turn in a two hour and 15 minute cut. Reynolds wanted to focus on the action sequences in the story and ask for reshoots in Hawaii to help fill in logic gaps where sequences would need to be cut. Now, Costner didn't want to do reshoots in Hawaii, and he wanted to focus on the Mariner's character. Guess which one got their way? Kevin Costner, Academy Award winner, movie star, and producer Chuck Gordon took control of the editing bay, and Kevin Reynolds quit the movie. It should be noted that nearly the exact same thing happened on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Reynolds said of Costner at the time, Quote, in the future, Costner should only appear in pictures he directs himself. That way, he can always be working with his favorite actor and his favorite director. End quote. Sick burn. It should also be noted that Universal had little incentive to do reshoots as well. This would have added expense to an already expensive film and pushed their July 4th release date, which would have cost them dollars at the box office. So the buzz around the movie has reached levels of toxicity rarely seen in Hollywood. The budget had reportedly passed $150 million at this point in time. The trades are alight with clever monikers for the picture, including Fishtar, a riff of Ishtar, and Kevin's Gate, a riff of Heaven's Very Gate. Very good. Uh, to be fair, Kevin's Gate was actually coined during the difficult production of Dances with Wolves, but it came back for this movie. Hmm. So, you might be wondering how details like these got leaked. Well, in this instance, there were a lot of leaks on the movie, but my favorite was Dennis Hopper, who did his best oh, no. to make sure everyone knew how expensive this movie was. Let's listen to this clip of Dennis Hopper on the Dick Cavett <laughs> Show in December of 1994. This is the most expensive movie in the history of this planet. Mm-hmm. How much is it up to now? Well, I, I don't really have that 
no, that I'm not. They don't really tell me. Are you free to but, reveal it if you do? Well, I'm not really, but so we being me, I'll, I'll go for it. Yeah, <laughs> it was budgeted a hundred million. Oh well. And I think it's somewhere between one hundred and forty and 160. That's what I've heard, so I don't really, but I really don't have the knowledge. Do to you, know. as a film star and an illustrious, important figure in the business, when you hear money talked about like that, ever have that cliched thought, and they don't have enough money to keep the kids' mission open in Harlem, and they don't have enough money to keep the this and that you going? Know what I, you know what I think really shows you that I'm a, really an actor? I think... How come I'm not getting more money? That's, that's what I think. That's, the real, that's as honest as <laughs> you know, statement. I mean, I, I have to heard. tell you the truth. I, I just wonder why they don't pay me more money yeah. to be in this movie. So, not only does Hopper reveal Dennis Hopper was a party. <laughs> he was a party. I was like, no, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, not only does he reveal this amount, but this is a moment. If you remember, this was talked about on Heaven's Gate, and it was also talked about on Titanic. It, the question of should this much money be spent on a movie yeah. becomes a moral question. And I think it's stupid for a number of reasons. At this same point in time, obscene amounts of money are being spent on innumerable activities that are less valuable in terms of their cultural you know, prevalence than movies. But in this particular instance, it is only lead- adding up to this toxic buzz that's building around the movie. So what do people know about this movie? They know that it's a disaster. They know it's a disaster. They know people have been getting hurt on it. They know a lot of the casting crew have quit. They know that Kevin Costner cheated on his wife with a hula dancer. They know mm-hmm. that it cost more money than all of these things that they can possibly think of and the hubris of the men involved that wanted to make it. Everyone's attitude is basically fuck this movie before anybody has seen a frame of it. So on May 9th, 1994, the producer's rough cut is screened for a test audience in Sacramento. The only thing the audience has been told is that they are, quote, seeing a new action movie with a major Hollywood star. Just before the lights went down, it was revealed to be Waterworld. One distraught audience member shouted out, fuck this, I want my money back, (laughs) even though he wasn't paying for the test screening. So the audience felt duped. Uh, The test print received negative reviews. Attendees complained about the pacing. The computer-generated shark footage saying that much of the movie looked fake. And meanwhile, composer Mark Isham, who'd scored Point Break, A River Runs Through It, and Quiz Show, turned in Mm. demos for roughly 25% of the film. Isham had been hired by Reynolds. They'd worked together before. And at this point, Reynolds is off the movie. Yeah. Isham has taken an introspective and restrained approach that he felt matched the setting of the film. Costner says it sounds too ethnic and bleak and fires him. Oh, no. Mark Isham offered to redo the score, but Universal and Costner decided to move on because they were in a crunch and they felt that they couldn't trust him with the project. Costner and Universal then hired James Newton Howard, giving him exactly six weeks from the point that he was hired to record and deliver the final score. Well, damn, he did a pretty good job. He did a pretty good job. He was able to cobble together the blockbuster feel that Costner wanted, and he was given a little help with synth samples from his new friend and emerging composer, Hans Zimmer. That adds up. Yeah. There are very Hans Zimmery moments in there this. There are very Hans Zimmery moments. So the final production cost on Waterworld came in at $175 million, which was $75 million over the $100 million initial green light budget. 
It was also almost $60 million more expensive than the film that had just become the most expensive movie of all time, True Lies. <laughs> James Cameron just continued making the most expensive movie ever, literally. Yeah, he, the problem is they're good, though. I know, they are. It was <laughs> Terminator 2, and then he did True Lies, and then he did Titanic, and then he did Avatar. And in each instance, yeah. he made the most expensive movie. Universal spent another $60 million on print and advertising. The total bill was $235 million. Waterworld premiered on July 28th, 1995. Uh, it brought in $21.5 million its first weekend, which Ugh. secured it number one at the box office, but was far below the 40 to $50 million you would have wanted it to make to potentially recoup its budget. Its final box office tally was $100 million in the United States, but $164 million internationally, with a total worldwide box office gross of $264 million, with a budget of 235 So... At first blush, it's tempting to say, as many people do, that Waterworld was an historic flop. Well, However, it made its money back. Almost. I did some research, because remember, the studio is only getting half of those box office receipts. The theaters get the rest. So that 264 is less than 150 in what the mm. studio is saying. But I did some research into the film's financials and found out that this is actually a misnomer. Waterworld was not a flop, even though people like to say it was. Waterworld's box office gross of $264 million resulted in roughly $115 million going back to the studio. Now, $115 million against a budget of $235. That's a huge loss. Well, it would be if you didn't include aftermarket revenues for VHS rentals, sales, right. and television licensing. So in 2013... Deadline estimated that Waterworld had brought in an additional $190 million from aftermarket channels, bringing the project out of the red and making it profitable to the tune of roughly $10 million. My favorite aspect of this episode so far is that Waterworld didn't lose money. It actually made money. $10 million. That's a, a miracle. It is a miracle, but it's one that we need to mention. This movie is still plagued by the negative press that generated during its production, and I think it's largely unjustified. Here is Kevin Costner on the effect of negative press leading up to the film's release. I myself don't like being told what to think, and I think most people are really like that. They don't like people telling you what to think. And, uh, and as it turns out, that information hasn't been good. And so that makes you even more angry that, that perhaps there might be some people that won't ever get to see this movie based on what some idiot said. So it's a little bit of a pity party. But mm -hmm. I will say that what this reminded me of is the Rotten Tomatoes effect of present day, where we all do it, myself included. We create thresholds under which we are unwilling to give movies a chance. We use the tomato meter as a barometer to make yeah. decisions as to what we should watch. And as a result, creators become beholden to that metric to the point now where Certified Fresh is put on movie posters. Oh, yeah. It's shocking. This is not a shot at critics. I think film criticism is incredibly important. I love good film criticism. A.O. Scott, have his book. I haven't read it. It's on my shelf. <laughs> um, but I do think that this was an example of... Now, Lizzie, I know you didn't like the movie, but I would argue that it's a perfectly serviceable mid-90s action flick. It, ha it is dated in a lot of the ways that a lot of mid-90s yeah. action movies are, but it fits in perfectly with the milieu of the day. And oh, yeah. 
it absolutely suffered from the narratives that were spawned from its production. When the reality is it made money, it spawned the Waterworld, a live SeaWorld spectacular ride event at Universal Studios, which opened in 1995 and is still running today. And they expanded to both Japan in 2001 and Singapore in 2010. All three remain extremely popular to this date. The pre-release hysteria about this movie was so pervasive that the movie was deemed a flop before it didn't even flop. Costner continued to churn out films at a prolific rate. However, he, after this project, lost his luster critically and commercially. Sometimes the narrative around a movie gets so destructive that it prevents us from being able to look at the movie in the right way. Sometimes I think we look at a tomato meter and it colors the way that we watch the movie we're going into. If it's been rated very positively, we think we're dumb and we're missing something if we don't like it. If it's rated very negatively, we think we're dumb and that we're seeing something that's not there when we like it. I think Mm -hmm. this was an early iteration of that to a certain extent, and I liked what Kevin Costner had to say about, don't tell me what to think, I want to find what I like and think it myself. Kevin Costner, say what you will about him, works harder than anybody we have covered in this podcast so far. Maybe James Cameron is up there also. But Kevin Costner, as I mentioned, went 157 days on this movie, strapped to boats, getting divorced, getting whipped by the wind, six days a week. His first day, he quit. His director quit. The studio said he had to cut the movie down. He lost $80 million in a divorce settlement. Four movies flopped. Everybody said he had vaginas on his neck. They shat on his movie. And still, he went out and he did the press tours. He stood up for his project. He owned it. He owns it to this day. He says, I think it's a good movie. It's a fun movie. It's got a lot of problems. I'm proud of it. I'm glad we did it. So that uh, concludes my history of the flop that wasn't Waterworld, which celebrated its 25th anniversary this year. Oh, happy birthday, (laughs) Waterworld. (laughs) So, Lizzie, I'm really excited about this part of the podcast, considering how much you hated the movie. What went right in your mind? Uh, I might just go ahead and go with Dennis Hopper's fake eyeball that they try and sew onto him in that one scene. It's one of the most... Very fun scene. There's a scene, which, by the way, I don't think they actually show Dennis Hopper losing the eye. It's another thing where all of a sudden it, like, jumps to the next scene, and all of a sudden he's missing an eye, and he asks one of his minions to, like, fix it for him, and they sew this awful, like... Hieronymus Bosch painting demon eye onto his head um, <laughs> and I loved it I guess I'll go with my bright spot is is Dennis Hopper's fake eye yeah in Peter Rader's original script there was a lot more of that weird sense of humor and a lot of that was excised there should have been and, more of it yeah exactly. it was a much goofier story yeah uh, my what went right for this film was I thought the art department absolutely crushed it. The construction, the scale, the scope, you can feel it. There is hardly, it feels like any CGI. You really notice the CGI because it's mid nineties when it does happen like that sea monster, but that giant Exxon Valdez set, the Atoll, the Trimoran, it feels like it's functional. It feels like everything works on the boat as it's happening. It didn't feel like they were cheating the project. Um, totally. And my other one, right, is Kevin Costner did most of his own stunts on this movie. And I think you can tell in the final film because it looks yeah. like Kevin Costner's swinging around the mast and, you know, jumping from side to side. So I will give his committed performance on that front kudos. Well, guys, that concludes uh, our episode of Waterworld, one of the most infamous production nightmares in movie history. We hope 
that it will help you appreciate this film a little bit more, whether you like it or not. As always, please send us recommendations through our Instagram handle at whatwentwrongpod or whatwentwrongpod at gmail.com. Yeah, we've gotten a bunch of interesting recommendations and we are listening. We are taking them to heart. And when we actually manage our time appropriately, we are covering them. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. What Went Wrong is a Sad Boom podcast presented by Lizzie Bassett and Chris Winterbauer. Editing and music by David Bowman with cover art from Euthana Uos.